You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Rich Mazingo, the president of the Chattanooga Lookouts Baseball Club. Rich has spent his professional career in the game of baseball. He was named the 2019 Southern League Executive of the Year, the same year his Chattanooga Lookouts were the Southern League Organization of the Year and the Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce's Small Business of the Year. Rich, welcome to my morning cup. Before we get into your position on the designated hitter and whether or not Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, what's in your morning cup? Man, I go the same thing every single morning of my life. I do a little protein shake with a little chocolate protein, peanut butter powder, a half a banana, and almond milk. No coffee? I have never, ever in my entire life had a cup of coffee. Wow, was that? I don't know. It's There's so much that's appealing about coffee to me. You know, the camaraderie, the sitting around, the watching the sunrise. Because I am a morning guy. I love the mornings, but I've just never gone down the coffee path. Don't have any desire at all to do it. Well, that's interesting. So protein shake every day. Yeah, yeah. Just something to get your body started, get something moving. It's And it should be a protein shake after I leave the gym, but it's not. It's a protein shake after I roll out of bed on my way to work. So yeah, I guess some good comes of it. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be a part of it. Everyone knows you as the Chattanooga Lookouts and your history with the baseball club. But what I wanted to talk to you about is the history of your career and how you got started. So serious question, but not so serious. Sure. Have you always been a baseball geek? Is this what you wanted to do? Growing up, I was a huge baseball fan. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And in D.C. back then, the Nationals weren't in, in town. The Senators had left, so I was an yeah. Orioles fan. I've been an Orioles fan my entire life and enjoyed going to baseball games, played baseball all the way. I played baseball till curveballs actually started curving. So in 10th <laughs> grade, I, I had to shut my baseball career down. But I always had a love for the game and went to James Madison University and and got through there. But I reached back, Mike, and look at what kind of made this path happen. And when I was in seventh grade, my family got transferred from the Pentagon to the Air Force Academy. My mom and I drove across country, and our first stop was in Evansville, Indiana. We had some friends of ours, Chuck and Emo Murphy. Chuck had retired from the Army, and he was the general manager of the Evansville Triplets at the time. I don't even know that I'd ever been to a minor league game mm-hmm. at that point. But uh, And how old were you at this time? I was 13 okay. years old. But I got the opportunity that day. I sat in his office. I watched a baseball game. I met Jim Leland, who was his young manager on the way up. Mark Fidrich, who you and I know, oh, the, the bird. bird. Yeah. I met him that day and just kind of went into the back of my psyche. Never really kind of thought about it. Went to James Madison, got a degree in marketing, got out, got a sales job. How were you selling? I sold about 50 different product lines only in the military exchanges. So L'Oreal makeup, Hitachi camcorders, Casio watches, Springs bed linens. I mean, just across the board. But I did that for two years and I just thought there's got to be a better way to make a living. So I stopped that job. I quit that job and I went to the baseball winter meetings in Louisville, Kentucky and applied for five different jobs. On your own? On my own. You said, I'm going to spend my own money. I'm Mm -hmm. going to go to the baseball winter meetings. Mm -hmm. I know nobody. I'm going to walk around and they may think I'm going to bring them iced tea. Well, let's go back to a few minutes ago. I was talking to Chuck Murphy, who's still a friend of the family, who was still running baseball teams. Actually, at this point, he was the president of the Florida State League. So I called him and I said, how do I get into baseball? He said, the baseball winter meetings got the biggest job fair of the year. So I went, I applied at the job fair, got five interviews, two offers, took one job. 
Um, I took about an 80% cut in pay, <laughs> lost my company car, lost my company expense account. It's probably the best move I ever made in my life. You were happier, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was happy to get to work 90 hours a week during the summer. And you know, I, I, I go to a baseball stadium every day. That's an underrated experience when you walk through the gates of the stadium and then as you walk to the field and you come through that tunnel and it opens up and there's this emerald green vista. I think it's the best marketing piece we have. At our field right now, when you get to the top of the steps at AT AT&T, and like you say, man, you're staring out there and Signal Mountain is behind you and the sun's starting to set and you're looking at that beautiful green carpet out there. It's a special place to be. Yeah, it is. I want to go back a little bit on a couple of things. You passed through Evansville when you were 12, met mm-hmm. Jim Leland. Who mm-hmm. were they affiliated with? There were the Tigers. But back then, all the minor league teams, Mike, had, you know, if it was uh, the Evansville triplets, had the E on the front of their hat that looked just like the Detroit Tigers. Mm-hmm. And so every team was super involved with their major league affiliate. And, you know, so I just got my old replica Evansville triplets hat the other oh, really? day. And it just brings back all those memories and all those times we spent doing those things. Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought about because back then they adapted the branding of the home club. And now there's unique branding where you get stuff like the Montgomery Biscuits. Well, it really started. I mean, the first one that a lot of people will point to is the Chattanooga Lookouts. You know, in 1991, the Chattanooga Lookouts went to the same logo they have now, the two eyes inside of the C. And that was totally different than anything that people had seen before because people were always, like you said, matching their major league affiliate. But the Lookouts did that in 1991, and that just kind of started the onslaught. And like you said, there's, you know, the Rumble Ponies out there and the Mud Cats and the Biscuits, and yeah. the, there's so many on and on and on. Yeah. Trash Pandas. Uh, what a name. Oh, they've killed it with it. Just unbelievable. Done a great job with it. Yeah, they have. When you got out of James Madison, mm-hmm. you were selling to military uh Commissaries, for lack of a better term? Army Air Force Exchanges. So it was not the the food side, but it was the the convenience store side. So people who lived on the base or or affiliated with the base would go do their shopping there. Mm -hmm. Tax-free and the lowest prices guaranteed because the government set it up that way. So when AudioVox sold, let's say AudioVox sold a car stereo to Walmart, they could sell it at $59. But when they sold it to Army Air Force Exchange, APHIS, they had to sell it less than $59. So every place you go, that was the lowest price anywhere. It's actually still the second biggest retailer in the entire world. Did not know that. Yeah. So you said your dad was transferred from the Pentagon to the Air Force Academy, Mm -hmm. and you'd start a career in basically selling to military. Yes. Mm -hmm. You could probably have a good career there because you had some connections. Oh, yeah. I know you said you thought there was more to it, but a lot of times when you get out of school and you start a job, it's kind of like... Is this all there is? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and a little bit of it, it's the velvet handcuffs. You know, you've been yeah. your entire life. You worked during the summer. You made four twenty-five an hour when you and I were growing up. And now you're making real money. And like I said, I had a company car. I had a company expense account. But literally, Mike, every Monday morning, I'd wake up about 5.30 or 6, leave my house, drive an hour, two hours, five hours to work, and I'd spend the entire week on the road. And I'd get back to my house Friday night at 6, 7, 8, 9 o'clock. And I did it every single week. And that's what got me. The job, I didn't mind at all. The job was great. It was relationship selling. And you got to meet the people that you were selling to. And that part was just fine. But there was literally no other life. I mean, you got home. And on Saturday, you had to get cleaned up and had to, you know, wash your clothes and get ready to go. And then Sunday, you kind of prepped for ready to go. So your whole life was so focused on that. Now, once again, I spend way more hours doing it now. But I sleep in my bed every night. Yeah. I see my wife every day, and that makes all the difference in the world. 
What did you take from that job that's helped you in your baseball career? I think it's, you know, our baseball, and especially at the minor league level, we have very little to do with baseball itself. We do a lot of selling. We sell sponsorships. We sell groups. We sell season tickets. So what I really learned during that job was sales oriented. I learned that people like to buy from people they like, that people want to be a part of something that they want to be a part of. And the fact is I'm on both sides of that now. I buy a lot of stuff from media people. I Mm -hmm. buy a lot from retailers and that kind of stuff. And the fact is still the same. I like to do business with people I like to do business with. And so relationship selling is probably the biggest thing I took out of my two years there. You make great points with that because people like to do business with people they know and trust. Mm -hmm. The second part of that is people will see right through you. If you're trying to make yourself something different, so you'll think they'll like you or, or like your product, people will see through that in a skinny minute. But, you know, try to be a good person. Try to do what you say you're going to do. That's the one thing we talk about all the time. If you say you're going to do it, it's got to happen. The other thing I'd add into there is confidence. Oh, yeah. You know, if you don't know your product, people will see right through that. Well, and you have to enjoy your product. You have to believe in your product. You can know everything in the world about your product. If you don't believe in your product, it's still not going to do you any good. So what year was this that you left your sales job? You took an 80% pay cut, but you got into something yeah, you love. That was 1993. My first year in, in uh, Port Charlotte was 1993. So Port Charlotte, Florida. Port Charlotte, Florida. It was, it was spring training for the Texas Rangers, and then they had the single-A season for the Charlotte Rangers right after mm-hmm. that. And so, where'd you go from there? I came straight here. I didn't know that because I met you in about the end of 99, 2000. So you came here in 93 to work with so the Lookouts? So November of 93, my first season here was 94, which just happened to be Michael Jordan's first year in professional baseball. So our first three games here were the Birmingham Barons, just lights out craziness. I spent the next nine years in Chattanooga, and then I left for nine years. So when you got here, the Lookouts were playing at Ingalls Stadium. Yeah, sure enough. For six years, actually. I guess it was 2001 when that opened? 2000, we opened up on top of the hill. Who threw out the first pitch? I'm trying to remember. It was George and Barbara Bush. George Bush played college baseball at Yale. He and Barbara both go out to the mound, and George gets up there and stands on top of the rubber and throws a strike, and everyone cheers. And Barbara walks out. She sneaks up in front of the mound, looks at the catcher, and just waves her finger at him to get closer. And he just walked up and walked up and walked up, and he was about probably 15 feet away, and she just tossed it to him underhand, and the crowd went wild. It was fantastic. That's great. Yeah. So related to those early days with the lookouts, Mm -hmm. two things I want to hear from you on. One is, and we'll get to this when we talk about the new stadium, but you've already been through Build a Stadium, so Mm -hmm. you've got experience with it. But working for Frank Burke, Frank, pretty much a master marketer, really enjoyed himself, really brought a lot of joy and fun to Mm -hmm. the lookouts. He was amazing. He is amazing. I still talk to Frank two or three times a week. He's just such a genuinely good dude. But he just brought it all every day. I mean, he was excited to be a part of it. He was always present. He was always a part of what was going on. And whether it was sumo run the bases (laughs) or bringing the camels to center field or whatever it may be, he was a master of always thinking about ways to get the lookout's name out there and just amazingly good at it. Yeah, and to your point of his family background, I'm familiar with a bit of it because his dad was uh, in broadcasting and his brother was involved with Comcast. So Mm -hmm. I guess a little bit of that DNA in there. And, you know, Frank spent a little time in the radio business, but realized there was, once again, a better way to make a living and just, I think, loved what he did here in Chattanooga. And I think that's something people are, particularly post-COVID, coming to, you know, taking off those velvet handcuffs and saying, Mm -hmm. you know what, I'd rather wake up every day being excited about going to the ballpark than 
and driving to wherever I got to go to pedal what I'm pedaling. No, you're 100% right. You know, I, I tell people all the time, my job's amazing because no one has to come to a lookouts game. Mm-hmm. No one is, is made to come. So if you don't want to come, if you're in a bad mood, if, if whatever it is, you, you, you don't have to come. So when we have a game, we average about 3,500 people a night, and it's 3,500 excited people, 3,500 people who are where they want to be. No one has drug them out there. So everyone's in a good mood and everyone's ready to have a good time. And it really is a magical place to be. I tell you a funny story related that I love going to minor league baseball games in particular. So when my girls were smaller, probably 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. I would take them to the lookouts game. About 14, 15, 16, they didn't want to be at the baseball games with me. As they got older, they're not huge baseball fans. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter just got engaged, but her fiance is a die-hard uh-huh. Houston Astros fan. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, she's looking and going, oh, my God, I'm going to spend the rest of my life <laughs> in a baseball stadium. I mean, this guy's die-hard enough that he has a row of Astrodome seats oh, no in his garage and a little TV set up with Astros. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so he can get into it. You know, I, to your point, I don't know that 50% of the people, I don't know that 30% of the people, Mike, that come to lookouts games are huge baseball fans, mm-hmm. but we give you the opportunity to come and sit down and visit with your daughter for two and a half hours or visit with your church group or visit with your company outside of those same stale four walls. And for us, we really do look at ourselves as an entertainment venue and not really as a baseball team. Yeah. But, but you know, there's still plenty of baseball fans out there who just want to come see nine innings of good baseball. Well, and you're competing for that entertainment dollar. Absolutely. And you're competing for it on a family basis more mm-hmm. than on an individual basis. Very much so. So you were GM at the Lookouts from 98 to 2003? Mm-hmm. I was. But you left in 2003. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go? Frank and I, I, I walked into Frank's office in 2002 and I said, you and I are doing the exact same job. I was the GM, he was the president, and the fact is, everything that I decided had to go through him, and that was fine, it's the way it should have been, but I had enough of that. So I went to him and I said, I gotta go. He said, where are you going? I said, I don't know, but I gotta do something different. And he said, what if we buy a baseball team? So he got some friends of his, some family acquaintances, out of New York City, we got together and we bought the team in Columbia, South Carolina. So I moved to Columbia, South Carolina, became the president of the Columbia Bombers, for three years, moved that team to Greenville, South Carolina, and then uh, ran it there for another year. So you're working for the lookouts, and you're getting a little frustrated because you're seeing that, well, yes, I'm the general manager, yeah. but the president is doing the best. And you were frustrated enough to say, I got to go do something else. Mm-hmm. And you were honest with your boss. Yeah. Rather than, here's my two weeks, I've found a job. And that led to him saying, let's buy a baseball yeah, team. Yeah, absolutely it is. And your point is very well taken by me at least. You know, I never looked for another job. I never looked at the one ads. I never went on to the industry publications to see if there was a general manager's job out there or something. First thing I did is I went to Frank Burke and I said, man, I've got to make a change. And that's scary. And and it's kind of twofold these days. You know, you have the opportunity to have someone on the other side of the desk say to you, man, I understand. Let's do what we can do to get you where you need to be. In my scenario, it couldn't have been a better scenario. Let's you and me and some partners go together and buy this baseball club. But you also have the opportunity these days, Mike, and the scary part and the reason I think people don't do is because people are commodities these days. And if you don't want to be with me anymore, I don't need you anymore. So Frank could have easily said to me, you know what, let's start our two weeks right now and get you on out of here then. And I knew enough about Frank Burke. I knew enough about his personality. And I felt like it wasn't going to go that way. 
but it's a frightening place to be. But I, I also don't believe in the other side either. I don't believe in spending your time working your day looking for other jobs out there. And while I know it happens, I just that's just not the way I want to do business. Well, I, I think it's a great lesson for anyone, particularly who's a little bit younger than us, mm-hmm. who's in their career and they're frustrated. I think there's a hesitation, there, there's a fear of going and being honest and saying, do you know what, I'm happy here, but I'm not happy here. And I think a lot of organizations lose great talent because of that. And I also think people make some rash moves to organizations because they think the grass is greener. If they had just been a little more forthcoming with their boss, maybe something can be worked out. No, you're 100% right. And I tell people all the time, one of my favorite things I get to do is watch young people grow. The vast majority of people I hire, Mike, are 22, 23, 24-year-olds. And to watch them grow and develop as human beings, first and foremost, and then as as professional people, has been amazing. And, and we really do focus a lot on just that at the lookouts. You know, the lookouts being minor league baseball and when I ran WTVC, very similar in that we weren't the major leagues. We had reporters who were in their second or third job coming through, much like you got ball players coming mm-hmm. through. And our job was to prepare them for the big club, for them to take the swings, get the strikes, to make the errors, and to learn from those. I would imagine that's similar in minor league baseball. Well, it is. And, and you know, for the guys that play on the field, it is just laser focused. They have one goal and one goal only, and that is to make it to the major leagues. Our guys make a month. They make it for five months and then they're done. The minimum starting salary in the major leagues is $770,000 a year. So once again, there's a financial payoff that is just meteoric above whatever they can do at the minor league level. But you go back to our people, our employees inside the Chattanooga Lookouts. One of the number of things that we do, we make sure they're involved outside of our four walls. Mm -hmm. And whether it be with the Miracle League or whether it be with the Chamber of Commerce or working on a golf committee for Rotary or whatever it may be, you have to be involved somewhere else. And and we don't do that to drive our business, but it's to drive their own business, their business as human beings. I tell people all the time, if you get up every morning, you go to work from nine to five and you come home and you sit on your couch, you're cheating yourself and you're cheating your community. So we really do try to be a part of our community and give back to our community. But that to me is much more important for them as individuals than it is for us as a business having those people out there. It's going to teach them to grow in different ways. And you've done a great job of that, and particularly in the Chattanooga community. So you were in Columbia, but you came back in, what was it, 2008? Uh, 2011. So, 2011. So I, left, I, went to, I went to Columbia, I was in Greenville for one year, and then I spent five or the shortest slash longest miserable <laughs> years in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? I lived in Freehold, New Jersey. I worked in Lakewood, New Jersey, and arguably just one of the best run minor league operations I could have ever been involved in. It was fantastic. But I was in New Jersey for five <laughs> years. And that's, uh, you know, from a guy who was born in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, lived in the South most of his life. That was a tough go. Well, it's kind of like my year-and-a-half sabbatical in Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> or as I like to refer to it as purgatory. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. Montgomery, great town, great people, but it's not Chattanooga. No, it's not. And I think I kind of feel sorry. I kind of, I'm jealous in some ways and sorry in some ways for people who are born and raised and stay in Chattanooga. Yeah. I'm jealous because they were born and raised and got to stay in Chattanooga, and that's a huge win. But if you never got to go somewhere else, I don't think you know what you got here. This is an amazing, amazing city to be in. That's an excellent point. I was raised in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Moving from Memphis to Chattanooga, it's two different worlds. And when I when I left Channel 9 and did the year and a half running stations in Alabama, the light bulb that went off for me was, 
I knew I still loved running television stations, but I did not love running television stations to the point that I wanted to live anywhere other than Chattanooga, Tennessee. So my whole goal was to get back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, not to run a TV station. Well, and you know, Mike, Frank Burke called me in New Jersey and said, hey, do you want to come back and run the Chattanooga Lookouts? And I said, that sounds awesome. What are you going to do? <laughs> and he said, well, I don't know. I said, if you'll leave, I'll do it. And, and this is a story I've told a hundred times. This is a story that I've told in front of Frank. So we're not talking out of school here. I said, if you'll leave, I'll come back and do it. And one of the things he told me is, hey, the team's for sale. So when you come back, as long as I own it, you can run that team. But I'm trying to sell it all day, every day now. And if I sell it and Mike Costa buys it, and he wants his son or daughter to come run it, you know, you're probably going to be out of a job. And I was willing to take that chance. I was mm-hmm. willing to take the chance of coming back to Chattanooga, having my job sold out from underneath me just to be back in Chattanooga. And it, it absolutely has paid off for me. Well, and as someone who's known you through that, it was almost like you never left, Rich. And you came back and everyone was like, well, that makes sense. Yeah, Rich was yeah. a great general manager. Uh-huh. So you come back, Frank's selling the club. The club sold. You continue to do what you're doing. Talk about COVID. How'd you guys get through that? Oh, it was devastating. And so we'll tell super quick stories here. The background of it, I remember early in March, we started getting together every afternoon at four o'clock and we'd talk just among the staff, just among my 14 employees. And we'd talk about, hey, this is going on. Make sure, just pay attention out there. Make sure you're doing the right thing. And then we got to a point where we're like, man, this thing's getting serious. And then we talked about putting hand sanitizer at the front gates and I don't want to do that. You know, everyone will think that we're incubating this whole yeah. thing. And, you know, so Major League Baseball says, all right, we're delaying the start of the baseball season. You know, at that point, we roll in another two weeks, three weeks, and the, and the entire season's canceled and it's yeah. over. And I'm looking at 14 other people who are, I mean, there's never a thought that we're going to fire people, but we don't know what, there's no money coming in. Yeah, so you, you were no talking about, stream. you know, restaurants lost 40, 50% of their business and the lookouts lost 97% of their revenues that year. We made 3% of our revenues for the entire baseball season. The entire staff stayed together. Every single one of them, no one left our sides. We took care of them the best we could. But, you know, the fact is we're not a huge business. We're a decent sized business. And, and the monies that we lost that year it'll take us five more years to recruit from this point. I mean, it just, it's monies that you'll never, ever see again. So we took a little bit of money in for sponsorship dollars that year. People who had paid before the season started, we took a bunch of season ticket money in. We called every single one of our season ticket holders. I think we had three season ticket holders that said, hey, we're coming back, but can we have our money back now? Every other season ticket holder, Mike said, don't worry about it. You hang on to it. We'll be back next year. Of our advertisers, I had one advertiser, it was a company based out of Canada, was the only one, but everybody else, 100% of our advertisers giving us money said, we'll just roll it over. That's great. So we had a little bit of money in the bank, but then as you know, the next year, I had zero season ticket dollars the next year, zero, because I had rolled it all over and I'd spent all that money taking care of my people for the last year. My advertising dollars, I'd done the same thing with keeping my people, you know, afloat and moving forward for the next year while we had a decent year we started the year at 40 percent capacity we moved up to 75 percent capacity and that was it for the entire year it was also a year where people were still very nervous about getting out and getting in big crowds we sold out our first 15 games at 40 percent capacity so it's really been devastating and there were so many different opportunities out there for the government to step in and they did amazing things in a lot of different places. Millions of dollars went to live venues because they couldn't have entertainment acts. We lobbied like crazy Congress to say, man, we're a live venue. We fall under these categories. 
but there was no money for minor league baseball in any of that. So what are the lessons you take away from COVID? There were so many great lessons, so many things that we did that have made our business stronger and sleeker and more robust in so many different ways. And we didn't want people physically handing tickets to another person. So we went ticketless. And, you know, for me and you, that's that's a different deal, man. Yeah. I, I've always had a ticket in my hand. <laughs> now you're going to tell me I got it on my phone? And what if I leave my phone in the car? So we went ticketless, and that has been amazing to us because your ability as a season ticket holder to share your season yeah. tickets is just immediate. We went cashless inside the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And same reasons. We didn't want people handing dollars back and forth and those sorts of things. And you would think on both of those that we'd have gotten huge kickbacks, but people have been thrilled about it. And we'll sell you a gift card when you come into the ballpark. If you want $20, $40, we'll sell you a gift card for it. If you don't spend all that money, bring it back to me. I'll give you your money back. We're trying to make it as easy as we can for people to do business with us. We've gone so much more online with all of our ticket sales and those sorts of things. It's made us a better organization. Maybe even the more important part is what cleanliness means these days and how we can do a better job of making sure our ballpark is clean for our fans every single day. So now you're building a new stadium. We are. We've got opening day coming up because Mm -hmm. we're going to release this podcast a couple days before opening day. Mm -hmm. You're counting it down and also counting down the baseball stadium. There's so many exciting things going on on both sides. Number one, we're committed and focused on having a fantastic 2023 season. We're going to have some promotions that people have never seen here before, and we're do- doing some super exciting things inside the ballpark. Can you give an example? Uh, yeah, yeah. We're going to have, um, there's a kids program out there, Paw Patrol, and we're going to have Paw Patrol characters at the ballpark this year, and we're going to do, I think it's 14 fireworks shows this year. We're going to give away 12 used cars this year. So we're going to do a bunch of cool things and some new things and some different things. We brought in a new director of food and beverage, so we're going to have, he swears to me that he's got the best pimento cheese around. You're going to be able to get pimento cheese on a hamburger, pimento cheese sandwiches, pimento cheese with pita bread. So Is he getting it from Augusta National? <laughs> <laughs> he is making it himself. He is making it himself. But the huge one, though, like, like you talked about, is the new ballpark yeah. and onto the south side and the old Wheeland Foundry site, the perimeter property site right now. And, you know, Mike, I tell people all the time, it's a huge deal for the Chattanooga Lookouts. And the reason we have to do it, and when I say have to, I mean have to, is because Major League Baseball has has changed the standards for a double-A facility, and we're not even close. Well, and, and if people will remember, Chattanooga was on the list of clubs that weren't going to be retained. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there were 42 municipalities in the United States of America lost their minor league baseball clubs that day. We were on the wrong side of that line. The Cincinnati Reds went to bat for us, and we told them what our plan was, and we thought we had a pretty good chance of doing it. They love Chattanooga. They love us. They love what we're doing, but our locker rooms aren't big enough. Our batting cages aren't big enough. Our weight rooms aren't big enough, and the fact is we're sitting on top of the hill that Frank built this thing on, and there's no space. There's not four more feet to build to expand the clubhouse, so we've got to do this thing, but back to the earlier point, you know, this is going to be a huge deal for the Chattanooga Lookouts, but what it's going to mean for Chattanooga, yeah. Tennessee is going to be stunning. The amount of development that's going to go on this piece of property, nothing's ever been on that site. Oh, I mean, well, since you, I got here. You come around the bend and you see not a very pretty site. So mm-hmm. what you guys are going to do, it's going to be a showcase. It's going to be Chattanooga's front door. We're going to build a fantastic multi-event venue space. We'll have 69 Lookouts games in there every year. But we'll have concerts there. We'll have, hopefully, high school football games. We'll have Rotary meetings, Kiwanis meetings, uh, whatever else you can think of. Our team in Columbia, South Carolina, does over 500 events a year in their ballpark. In Fort Wayne, they do over 700 events a year in their ballpark. So what we're looking to build is a place that Chattanooga will gather. 
and will be a part of what we do. But the bigger issue is what's going to go on around. That's what I was going to ask you. It's not just the ballpark. It's the retail. It's the housing. This is about development. This is about development of our city. And core partners are building $170 million worth of housing on the south side of that site. They should start in the next two to three months sometime. Another group came in and just said they're going to do $60 million worth of development on that site. I've read an article from a lady who's building a Cambridge Square type because the ballpark's going in there. The amount of development that's going to happen, not only on that 122 acres, but in the 400 plus acres that's that TIF site is going to be stunning for the city of Chattanooga. Absolutely stunning. How different was it from when you went from Ingalls Stadium to Hawk Hill and now Hawk Hill to where you are? Were you surprised that there was a pushback? There was very, very little pushback, Mike. There was very, very little pushback on this project. City Council was 9 nothing on the vote to build this stadium. County Commission was 8-1. The business development boards, one was 5 nothing, one was 4-1. to one. So there was very, very little pushback on any part of this project. There was a very loud, vocal minority that pushed back on it. But, I mean, the Chamber of Commerce got together one day and just wanted to ask people, are you in support of this project? There was like 1,400 signatures on it from people that you and I know very well. All the people that are moving and shaking in Chattanooga want this project to happen and need this project to happen. So there was very little pushback on any given level. We're asking for $1.4 million from the city and $1.4 million from the county. And that's over 30 years. That's not tomorrow. That's over the next 30 years. And the fact is once $350 million worth of development goes into that site, the stadium will pay for itself. There won't be another dime of taxpayer dollars that go in it. And if we go on the pace that we're going on now, it'll be successful way before it ever starts. Well, it's exciting for Chattanooga. It really is. A few more questions. Okay. When do you break ground? I hope to break ground, hopefully, maybe April, May of this year, soon after opening day. Then target opening for the stadium? April 2025. Knock on wood. I'm going to do it again. Keep knocking on wood. But, you know, the stadium's really not that difficult a project to build. It's about a 14-month process. So we're still in plenty of time right now. Uh, I've said it a hundred times and I'll continue to say, I want it to move faster, but we're still fine. We're still going the right direction, doing the right things. To keep the legacy of former presidents and former Bushes thrown out the first pitch, you're going to make a run at George W. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'd love to have someone like that come down. That'd be fun. You know, what we've learned in the past four, six years of our lives, if you can distance yourself from politics in general, it's probably a better move for you at this point. So we'll see. Good point. (laughs) A couple more questions. Of course. What's your stance on the designated hitter? I... (laughs) Um, I think designated hitter makes for a better baseball game. You were an American League guy. I was an American League guy. But, you know, we have really, really slowed down ball being in play in baseball these days. And you put a pitcher up there, the chance of him advancing a runner or getting a base hit just goes down dramatically. We need more offense in baseball. Well, you got a pitch clock now in the major leagues because because of the success in the minor leagues. When we went to a pitch clock, I think it was four years ago, the average game time for the Chattanooga Lookouts went down 29 minutes that year. Are you serious? 29 minutes. That's huge. It's huge. When you start talking about a baseball game and you you grew up it. Yeah. If you see a Mets-Yankees game, those games are four and a half hours. Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. I've stopped playing golf because it's four and a half <laughs> hours. But, you know, we need to shorten our game. And they're really... You know, I'm very proud of Major League Baseball, and and I think there's been some stub toes on some different things they've tried at different places. But, you know, for the first 120 years, baseball did not change. They didn't do anything. And what they're seeing now is they're seeing the need to change, and they're willing to do it. And I'm very proud of them for at least trying these things. And they're going to have some that are going to work very well for them, and we're the guinea pig for all of it. 
Well, in talking about baseball steeped in tradition and not changing, betting. Should oh, be, yeah. Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? No. Because, no. No, you don't no. think so. Even though betting is a huge part, and it's legal today. Pete Rose shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, not because of the betting that he did, but because of the absolute looking at people and lying and the deceit. And he has made a mockery of everything that baseball has stood for and his egregious actions towards Major League Baseball just infuriated me. So it's the integrity of the game. It's the integrity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, last question. Think about this. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? What's really important for a happy life? Man, life is about balance, and you better be able to figure out, because unless you're one of the fortunate few, you're going to have to work your whole life, and you're going to, to find a spouse or a partner that you want to stay with your entire life. And you're going to have kids possibly that you're going to want to nurture and grow with. And it's a matter of balancing all that together. And, you know, people who have the opportunity to not work as much and stay with their kids more, or if their wives stay home, that doesn't work for everyone. There's no cookie cutter answer. Mm -hmm. And don't look to your next door neighbor. You got to find out what's going to work for you and your family. And it's a balance of everything, whether it's church and work and play and family. There's got to be a balance in all of it together. That's great advice. And one thing you said in there, don't look to your neighbor. That's the hardest thing for everyone, particularly as you're coming up, because you're always wanting to compare yourself. Well, no, and it's especially these days. And, you know, I've got one son that's been out of college for two years, one son that's graduating in the next three months. And when you look at what their predecessors have done a year before or three years before, and you try to match them, it's just such a difficult task these days. Just do what works for you. Rich, this has been a fascinating conversation. No, man, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. It's been a blast. Well, I always enjoy talking to you, and hopefully our audience enjoys listening enough to where they'll subscribe. Rich, thanks again. Good to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.